Let's pray together, please. Lord, thank you this morning as we come to the Scriptures. We pray, come Holy Spirit. Come, Lord, and meet us. Come, Lord, and open our ears, our hearts, our minds. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill my words that you might lead us to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing in our His Story preaching series. We've been working our way this fall from, well, the beginning of creation through the big themes, the big stories of the Old Testament and working our way towards the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas. And I got to tell you, you made it. What I mean by that is today is the last of our Old Testament stories in this part of our series. And if you haven't been here for a while, let me just bring you up to speed on where we've been at least over the last few weeks. We looked at the fall of Jerusalem a few weeks ago, the fact that that exile had come, that over hundreds of years God had been sending prophets and calling his people back to himself. The the three main areas that the Lord was so intent on, one was idolatry, a failure to trust the one and true living God and instead turning to the things of this world to find safety and identity and significance from. That was a huge heart issue for the people of Israel. The second thing was they failed to keep the Sabbath. You might go, what? That's something worthy of exile? Yes! They failed to live in faith as created people trusting God. They couldn't stop one day a week for the sake of their relationship with the Lord. And of course, they wouldn't give back over the course of time the land. They wouldn't let it rest, and they wouldn't let people out of their debts as God had prescribed. And then thirdly, of course, they were absolutely unwilling to take care of the poor aliens, the widows, the orphans, the marginalized, and so set themselves apart from the living God by living according to the world and not according to his ways. And God had warned all the way back to Moses, if you turn away from me, then judgment will come. Hundreds of years, he said, turn back, turn back, turn back. No, they said. And so exile came. It first happened to the northern kingdom of Israel when the Assyrians vanquished, just completely smashed the northern kingdom. And then later it happened to the southern kingdom of Judah. The Babylonians came in, 606 B.C., and then in 586 B.C., the temple and all of Jerusalem were completely destroyed. And During that period, not only were many killed, but many were carried off into captivity in Babylon, particularly the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Daniel, and we heard about Daniel last week. Daniel is a huge pointer to how to thrive and survive in a hostile nation, hostile to the things of God. We saw in Daniel a heart willing to pray for the restoration of God's kingdom, even if it cost him his life. He knew what to stand for. And he knew that it was for God and for other people and for them to get back to the promised land. Now, just as the prophet Jeremiah had said, 70 years would be the time of their captivity. And so a remnant return to Israel began in 536 B.C. 50,000 Jewish people returned back. They went the thousand miles 
by foot and on camels and on donkeys to get back to Israel. And when they got there, they began to rebuild the temple. And they began to rebuild Jerusalem. They re-inhabited the land. Now, just incidentally, today as we get to Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah form the end of the Old Testament. That's why we've placed them where they are. It doesn't look that way in your Bible because there's all the prophets that come after them. But as the historical books, that's the end of the Old Testament. And Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible are just one book because they both together document the restoration of the city and the temple and the land. And so along with Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets, Ezra and Nehemiah are the last of the written word of Scripture until we come to the New Testament. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. That'll be next week. We're not quite there yet. So if you've got your Bible or a Bible app or you can use your Scripture insert that we gave you, let's take a look at the text itself. We want to walk through this. We don't just want to hear it. We want to see it as well as hear it. And so we'll begin with verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now you might have noticed there we jumped from verse 1 to verse 6. And we did that to just have pity on our readers and on your ears. Because there's five verses of names. Now, it's not unimportant. It's just hard for us to read and hear. In those five verses of names between verse 1 and verse 6, you're getting the lineage of Ezra. And Ezra's lineage is that he goes back to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest. And that is not insignificant. It's incredibly important. That's why I'm making sure you hear that. And so here he is, as we find Ezra, he is a priest of the lineage of Aaron, and in our introduction, we also find out he's a scribe, right? He knows the law of Moses, the first five books of the Pentateuch. Y'all, we struggled to memorize a verse here and there. He probably had all five books memorized. That's how thoroughly he would have known the Scriptures as a scribe of the law of Moses. He's in the court of the Persian king Artaxerxes, and he's given permission to go back to Jerusalem. Now, he's not in the first wave of exiles. Actually, another wave has gone back, and they've already rebuilt the temple at the point at which we get to Ezra 7. Ezra 1 through 6 is them going back. But Ezra is introduced to us in chapter 7 that we're looking at today. And he's, it's really important that he goes back. Most of us would just blow right through this if we ever read the book to begin with, because we don't understand the significance of, of what he's doing and what he's empowered to do and what he's taking back with him. So jump forward to verse 17. It's in the middle of King Artaxerxes' charge to him. And it says this, With this money then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. So what's happening here? 
Ezra is given a huge amount of money out of the king's treasury. And he's given permission to go back, but he's also given the vessels for the temple for worship in Jerusalem. Remember, those vessels had been taken out of the temple when, when it fell, when Jerusalem was overrun. And you can't have worship without those consecrated vessels. And so here he is, a high priest in the lineage of Aaron himself, heading back to Jerusalem with the vessels for the temple and all kinds of money. He's being given permission to begin the sacrificial system again. There is no way to come before the living God apart from sacrifice. And so what's happening here is not just, oh, they get to go home. No, 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 no. They're being completely restored, being restored to God. They have repented and turned back to the Lord. And God is reinstituting the worship of the living God back in Jerusalem with the temple. This is a huge event that goes on, and for most of us, we never even knew it was in here. Now, why does it matter? Because you have a high priest going back who's also a teacher of the Word of God who's going to start the sacrificial worship again so that atonement can be made for the people. And what that does is it prepares the way for the Messiah to come who will be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Apart from this happening, you never get Messiah. And so what we're seeing is really the intricacies of God's movement through the ages and through the different kingdoms and through his people. The reason all this happened was because God's grace and God's will and God's sovereignty are working out. This is his story. And the beauty of it in all the beauty that there is, of course, is that where we sit, you're part of his story. You may not have recognized that, but you're part of something so much bigger than just having a great house and living at the beach. You're part of something that will not only, that not only began long ago, but will go on forever and ever more. It's the beauty of the way God works. It's all happening because the hand of God is at work. You might ask the question, why did Ezra find favor in the eyes of the king? Well, verse 6 says, the hand of the Lord his God was on him. How was Ezra able to make the journey back to Jerusalem? Verse 9, the good hand of his God was on him. Where does Ezra find the courage to go before the king? Like, if, if you know about Nehemiah the cupbearer, he was terrified to go before the king. And if you know about Esther, she also, she was the wife of one of the kings. She was terrified to go before him because if you went before the king and he was displeased, you got killed. You were dead. Where does he find the courage to go before this king? Well, verse 28 says, the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And why did the king of Persia give permission for these sacred vessels to be taken back, for the high priest to go? Well, it says in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. God's plan, God's story will unfold. The question is, will we be a part of the unfolding of that story? Ezra was a man who said yes, and many others have since his time. question for our hearts is, are we willing to enter into that story? Are we willing to be beckoned by his great grace that the hand of God might be upon our lives 
as well. It's going to unfold. That's why as we're in this Advent season, we not only look back at the first coming of Christ, but we always look forward to his return. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of things, but there's always this backward and forward look for the people of God because time is his and the great plan of all things is his. and You get to be a part of it if you'd like to be. And so God's part is working out. But, but you need to understand, Ezra's not just a puppet. It's not like God's the great you know, puppeteer in the sky making Ezra do these things. Ezra's heart is for the Lord, and Ezra's mind is for the Lord, and Ezra's will is for the Lord. And it's obvious that all the good that he has accomplished and would accomplish in his life, yes, it's because of God's grace, but it's also because he was willing to enter in and be a part of what God was doing. Are you willing to do that too? Look at verse 10. We'll see what it was about Ezra and how he approached life that enabled him to be used mightily by God. It says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is one of the best summaries in the entire Bible about what it looks like to be a God follower. What we would say, what it looks like to be a disciple. Because there's, there's no incidentalness, there's no carelessness about Ezra's life. There's no flippancy to the things of God. There's no, hmm, maybe this is a good week, but maybe not. No, Ezra set his heart, his life, the direction of his progress was toward the Lord. It's about purposefulness. Now think about who this man was. Yes, he had a dangerous job working for the king, but he also had a highly lucrative job working for the king. He was in the king of the entire world at that time, in his court. He had access. He had money. He had whatever he wanted, and he lived in the New York, the London, the Paris of his day, in Babylon. It was the capital of the entire world. He had a posh existence, but he was willing to forsake it all because he had set his heart on God. And God came first, and everything flowed out of that. And so it says, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord. His life was focused on knowing the Scriptures. You know, there was a list that was put out, and there's lots of lists that get put out you know, on the Internet, top ten lists that come all the time. I, I saw one, top ten books that people lie about reading in order to appear well-read. You can imagine some of the titles on there. You've got George Orwell's 1984, Tolstoy's War and Peace, Anna Karenina, you name it. The stuff you were supposed to have paid attention to in your English class somewhere along the line. But, ironically, one of the top books that people lie about having read is also the Bible. Which explicitly makes the point, hey, you shouldn't lie. <laughs> which is really ironic, I think. Have you read it all the way through yet? Now, if you have, don't jump up and down and have glee in your heart. And, and this is not a question to bring about, like, condemnation. That's not the point. Like, we have something that, that many people around the world would give their lives for. And we've got them sitting around all over the place. We've got them on, on our, our phones. Have you read it all the way through? 
Has it been a while since you've read it all the way through? Why not for 2022 set a goal for yourself to be like Ezra, to set your heart to study the Word of God from the beginning to the end. There's lots of different ways you can do it with a little Old Testament and a little New Testament mixed in. You can read it chronologically like we've been doing. There are all kinds of Bible apps to help you. There are special Bibles that are day-by-day Bibles to take you through. What if 2022 were the year that you, for the first time, or maybe for the hundredth time, read through the Scriptures from cover to cover, seeking God? Because that's what Ezra is doing. It's not just to read the book for the sake of reading the book. It's because you're so desperately hungry for the Lord and you want to know His ways. That's why Ezra studied. His heart was not just reading, he was studying. And the Hebrew word there, it means means you beat a path. Think about before we had all these boardwalks out here on the beach, right? People find their way down certain grooves and you beat a path through the dunes. Or if you've ever been out in the woods or in the mountains and you can follow deer paths, those are paths that have been beaten because they've been walked on over and over and over again. Ezra beat a path to the Lord. Will you beat a path to the Lord? Will you seek Him diligently, studying to know Him, not just to know about Him, that's good, but because your heart is so willing to be used by Him. The world is desperate right now for people who will beat a path to the Lord, who through study are available to the presence of God, who know Him so deeply and intimately that their lives overflow with the goodness of our God. That's what Ezra did. But he didn't just stop there. It says, Ezra had set his heart to study, and the next phrase is really important, and to do it. We call this the Nike verse. Just do it. Just get on with it. Practice. Start and continue. And when you fall, get up and do it again and keep moving. Any of us who are any good at anything in this world have had to practice. If you're a musician, they they do a lot of practice. If you play tennis, you had to do a lot of practice. If you're a business person, you had to practice at something along the way. Whether you did that in school or you did it in another way, we have to practice. I think that's a, a good reason, by the way, why, why doctors have a practice. Right? Because they're working it out. I mean, they've got a lot of study, but they learn a lot as they go, right? Will you practice? Will you do? Will you study and do? Because God didn't just give the scriptures, didn't just give the word to entertain us or to tickle our minds, but so that we would know his ways. And in living his ways, by doing his ways, our lives would be filled with his presence and we would bless not just ourselves, but the people around us. This is the way God works. He's always worked this way and he will always continue to work this way. And what happens when you're so immersed in studying and doing the word of God Well, two things. One, the blessing of God, the hand of God is on you. But also you don't look the same as everybody else around you. And and that can be a rub. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. And I I say this an awful lot. We've had a lot of obnoxious Christians in the last few years, particularly. I'm, I'm talking about being different from the people around you. So that if you're in school, you don't quite always fit with what everybody else is doing. And, and if you're in the workplace, you're going to find times when it, like, it rubs because the way of God, the doing of the things of God is not the way everybody else does it. 
I've, I've said this before, but some of you are new. I, I remember the very first time I, I intently went to read the Word of God through in a year. I was working in corporate America. I was somewhere in the middle of the prophets. And all of a sudden, it was like I had this wisdom that I didn't have when I started. I was a Christian when I started. But I had like insight and wisdom and discernment. And I knew how to lead my team in the midst of some really difficult circumstances. And I rem remember my boss coming in, uh, my supervisor saying, in the midst of a corporate buyout, when everybody was losing their minds, she said to me, what is wrong with you, Chris? It's like, what are you talking about? She said, you're the only one around here with peace. I said, I've read the end of the book. I know who has me. My life is safely hid in God through Jesus Christ. And it gave me an opportunity, yes, even in the midst of a corporate environment that frowned upon sharing faith, to share my faith with my supervisor who was panicking about the buyout that was going on. I didn't lose my job. But it made a rub. She was frustrated with me for a while. I wish I could say she came to faith. She didn't, at least not then. I haven't seen her in a very long time, so I've been praying for her ever since. You won't quite fit. Your life will look a little bit different when you read the book. Like you're not going to say everything that comes to your mind if you're a person of the book. And you'll speak up at times when you'd rather be quiet if you're a person of the book. And you'll let go of the hatred in your heart for your enemy, whether they're in your family or they used to be in your family or they sit across the aisle from you in a political sphere. You cannot have hatred in your heart for your enemy if you're a person of the book. Because the center of time is a cross in which our God died that we might be forgiven. And so who are we not to forgive others? I don't mean we have to agree on everything. We don't and we won't. That's part of human. That's part of different views and different cultures and, and different personalities. But here's the thing when we get into our differences, do we treat each other with love? That's what people of the book do. And when you're slighted and you're passed over and people put you down, do you lash back? Or do you go, oh, that I might suffer for my Lord? even in this little way. Thank you, Jesus. You suffered for me. May my life be an offering to you. It'll change the way you do business. It'll change the way you do family. It'll change the way you use your body. It'll change the way you approach your marriage. It'll change the way you date. It'll change the way you do money. It'll change the way you spend your time. It'll even change what you do on Saturday. And on Sunday, because you're a person of the book, and a person of the Lord, and a person of the Word, it's not merely to be studied, it's to be put into practice, but it doesn't end there. That's, that's kind of the great myth that's gotten into the church, I think. It says Ezra studied it, and Ezra did it, so it could be him and God and his Bible. No, in order to teach others. Now, he was called to be in the role of priest and teacher, just as, as I'm in a preacher and teacher role. But, but far too often we think, well, that's the job of the professionals. No, 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 no. That's the job of normal Christians, to teach the Word, to share the Word, to offer the goodness of God. To whom? To whomever. But you have to know it in order for it to be available to you. 
You don't have to know it all. How much do you know? This much? Give away that much. You know this much? All right, give away that much. And the beauty of walking in intimacy with God, when you're a person of the word who's intent to study and know and do and to teach others, is that that's when he finds you usable and he brings people into your life that you can share with. And you'll find situations that pop up and appear and they feel like coincidences. No, no, no. The, The hand of the Lord is on you. And so he sends people your way. Or he gives you wisdom and insight about how to share a certain thing at a certain time in a way that is joyful and peaceable. And so we want to be like Ezra. And why? Because Jesus' words to us, his last words in a sense, were go into all the world, baptize, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. See, nothing's changed from the time of Ezra to now. What God started in the Old Testament, He continued in the New Testament, and He continues now in this age of the church and the Holy Spirit. And so we teach, and we offer, and we give. Let me just wrap up with this. How does all this point to Jesus? Because that's part of what we've been trying to do, and and I'll repeat this. We've done this because so often over the years we've heard people say, well, I don't like the Old Testament. I only like the New Testament. It's the same book. It's the same God. I I like the God of love in the New Testament. I'm not so big on the God of judgment in the Old Testament. The God of judgment of the Old Testament is the God of judgment of the New Testament, and the God of love of the New Testament is the God of love of the Old Testament. It's the same God. It's His story, and it unfolds. So where, where do we see Jesus? Well, Ezra taught the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Ezra sought to fulfill the Scriptures by living them out. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill them completely by living them perfectly. Look at his life. And we'll see that when we get to Jesus here pretty soon. The perfection of the way he lived in accordance to the law. Nobody could trip him up on the, on the issues of law because he was the Word, living the Word, living the law. Ezra was a teacher and a priest. Jesus is the great high priest. Ezra went to Jerusalem. Jesus went to Jerusalem. Ezra went to offer sacrifice in Jerusalem. And Jesus went to Jerusalem to be the sacrifice. Ezra helped people to find forgiveness through sacrifice. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice so that all who come to him in faith can be forgiven and be set at right with God. It's a beautiful story. It's remarkable if you'll let it invade your life and if you'll let God use you to be part of his story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the beauty of how you've moved through your people Israel and how you move through your people in the church. We thank you, Lord, and we pray you'd be stirring our hearts to be hungry for you and hungry for the Scriptures, to be people of the Word who study and do and teach others as well. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.